The reading this morning is from the first book of John, chapter 3, and verses 4 to 10. Uh, If you've got one of the church Bibles, it's on page 1,226, right near the back. Our Father God, we pray that our hearts and our minds will be open to your word this morning. Amen. So 1 John, chapter 3 starting at verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he, that is Jesus, appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Thanks, uh, Stephen, for reading. Thanks for praying before uh, you read it for understanding as well, because there's lots that's tricky there, isn't there? So I'm just going to pray again as we look at that together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, so much for your word, which speaks truth to us. And we pray today you would open our eyes so that we can see great things in your law. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Morris. I'm one of the church leaders here. I'll be spending some time opening up that passage to us today. Sorry, it says the wrong reference on the screen. That's totally my fault. I said the wrong slide. So uh, not uh, Stephen's fault or anyone in the back, but mine. Um, there is a Twitter feed that I love to follow called Very British Problems. Does anyone else follow Very British Problems? I love Very British Problems. Lots of people in our church aren't British, and it would be a great thing to follow if you want to understand how British people think. It will give you a great insight into that. So if you have a look at this first uh, slide coming up on the screen, um, this is, uh, what do you do in your spare time? Worry, look at my phone, sleep, make hot drinks, telly, stare into the distance, consider mowing the lawn, ponder the meaning of life, online shopping, regret, social media, waiting for deliveries that never arrive. That's about it. There's a British person's life, summed up in one tweet. But one of the things that Very British Problems is always pointing out is that British people never really seem to be saying what they mean. So this one coming up. We should meet for drinks soon. That would be great. And they never saw each other again. (laughs) It's us, isn't it? It's like one of the ones I saw, there were so many I could have put in, uh, was someone saying, um, are you coming out later? And a British person says, maybe. And what they actually mean is, I'd rather be dead. It's true, isn't it? 
We just don't say what we mean at all. Now, uh, John, who's writing the letter we're looking at today, uh, was a first century Jew, so he definitely, was, definitely wasn't British, but he has some British traits because he seems at first sight to be saying the opposite of what he means. So if you look at the end of the book, this will come up on the screen. At the end of the book, John says in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So he says, I'm writing this whole letter, if you trust in Jesus, so you'll feel really assured that you're properly a Christian. That's why I want to write to you, this church that I love. But then he says, in this verse, Stephen just read to us today, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Are you feeling assured? I mean, I'm not really reading that. Is John having a very British problem here, saying the opposite of what he means? Now, some people have uh, sort of said, well, maybe early Christianity was very different from what we know today, and they were all perfect from the moment they became Christians. Maybe that's what's going on there. Except then you can read the book of Acts about the earliest Christians and think, definitely not the case. Or maybe John thinks there's some sort of more perfect, higher level of Christian, and I'm just not there yet. Except he definitely doesn't believe that, because he makes that clear all the way through his letter. And so the questions start to get a bit more disturbing. People read this and they think, maybe it's just that I'm kidding myself and I thought I was a Christian, but I'm not because I sinned this morning. So I should give up and go home. Except John says he wants you to know that you have eternal life. And just in the last chapter, he said anybody who claims to be without sin is lying. So maybe the Bible is just very confusing and we'll never understand it. Well, we don't want to believe that either. Let's try. And I think John is actually talking about something that's very familiar and common for us to see. Think about the way that Christians are always portrayed in the media. Think about, uh, I don't know, films about mafia bosses. What always happens in those films? The mafia boss goes off to church gives his confession to the priest, and then leaves and murders 25 people. Like, what's going on there? Or think about something like, closer to home, uh, a program, again, that British people love, Midsummer Murders. As soon as the vicar appears, you know who the murderer is going to be, don't you? As soon as he's on the screen, it's going to be the vicar. You always know. Now, what is going on there? The media have picked up that people who say Christian words, who wear Christian clothes, who claim the name Christian, often aren't living out the life-transforming reality of knowing God. Clever people have realized this can be a way of um, telling people you're religious without really transforming your life. And you can cover up evil if you pretend to be religious. So you don't have to have the radical change in life that comes from knowing God, but you can just say the words and then cover up the bad things you've done. That's so common, even the media have noticed. And that's what John is talking about here. Do you see, he says in verse 7, his real concern 
is, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He's saying, don't let anybody tell you that this thing we're about is like a religious practice that covers up evil. That's not what is on offer. It's, in some Christian circles, fashionable to always be harking back to the past. He's saying, wasn't it great that 50 years ago, loads more people were in church than were in, are in church today? I'm not totally convinced by that. Because what was going on in society 50 years ago makes me think, what was going on was this thing that John's critiquing. People doing the religious thing, but it not really leading to a deep, life-changing reality. And John has been saying all the way through this, if you have trusted Jesus, you started a new life where you're actually included in the love that God the Father has for his son Jesus, that is miles away from do a religious thing and behave how you like. Different categories. And someone was telling people that in this church. That's why John says, I don't want people to lead you astray. Because it's quite an easy message to believe, isn't it? It would be nice to think in some ways. We could all come here today. Everybody here thinks we're nice, good Christians. And then we can go out and do what we like. And it doesn't matter. We would like to believe that sometimes. And I think there are lots of people around today, maybe even people here who think that. Who think most of my life is rejecting God and ignoring God and saying God's not important. And I've surrounded myself with other people who say to me, yes, don't be too much into this. Don't be too into your religion. Find people who won't challenge you. Just be nice. Don't transform. God loves you the way you are and other half-truths. And John's real concern is there in verse 7. Don't be led astray by that by a social religion, a watered-down version. Don't believe that the God who's brought you to know him the way his son Jesus knows him wants you to stay the way that you are. Don't let this wrong idea, somebody steal the life-transforming experience of knowing God. That will change you morally. How could it not if you really know him? No one who has really experienced this stays the same. And no one who's really experienced this thinks it's okay to stay the same. John's talking about a group of people. He mentions them later in the book. They went out from us. He says they were part of us and they went away because they didn't like the offer of transformation. And so he says, don't fall for that. Don't be led astray. Like we said, there's plenty of it about so three things we're going to see today that John is saying to them, you already know that show you this isn't true. Here's the first one. You know the true story. Now, interesting this week, the humanists are on the move. Humanism is basically a belief system that says there's no supernatural stuff. There's just humans doing good stuff. And usually what humanists do, in my experience, is just complain when religious people do things. Uh, that seems to be the centre of what they do most of the time. But this week, they've released a video, Humanist UK, actually sort of evangelising for humanism. Stephen Fry, famous actor, is voicing it. It's worth a watch. You should give it a watch. And basically, they say in this uh, video, humanism rejects the idea that there's any meaning in the universe outside of ourselves. 
So everybody just needs to realize that individuals create their own meaning. Now, so many questions about that. Maybe sometime we should do a culture slot on it because saying everybody creates their whole meaning is actually a meaning that's outside everybody, isn't it? But anyway, let's not pick holes in the humanists at the moment. As a video, I quite like it because there is a clear point of difference here. There's something to talk about. You humanists think the point of life is for people to invent what matters for themselves. I definitely think something different than that. I definitely think that what matters is decided by a father who loves his son and wants to include us in his love. They're very different. And it's better what Jesus is offering, what that message is, is better than the social religions of times past. And I think it's better that more people today say they're humanists if that's really what they are. If they do actually really think you decide your own meaning, that means there's something to talk about. Now, it's good to have that discussion because it's a demonstration of what John says here in more stark terms. He says in verse 4, sin is lawlessness. That's a tricky word. It doesn't just mean sin is law-breaking. It means sin, this thing the Bible talks about very negatively, is rejecting anybody's right to tell you how to live. So yes, John says, people who sin break the rules, but the issue is lawlessness. I reject anyone's right at all to tell me that there are rules. And it's different language in the humanist video, but that is what they're saying. You create your own meaning. And they say it. We reject any one meaning. It's lawlessness. We reject the idea that anyone can tell individuals what to do. Undoubtedly, anyone who sins is breaking one of God's laws. But anyone who continues to sin, who keeps on living in sin, is lawless. They don't accept God's right to tell them how to live. That's not a good thing. But I think it's a good thing it's not hidden anymore by a powerless social religion, lots of people going to church, that pretends to respect God, but does what hates him. But John is saying to these Christians, you know something different to that. Jesus came to take away that rebellious sort of two fingers up to God attitude. If you are a Christian, I know not everyone here is, but if you are, you know Jesus came to take away that lawless spirit. And of course, we know he didn't do it by imposing more laws. That wouldn't have worked, coming and tell us more things to try and do. There's a man called John Locke, and he illustrates this, uh, and it always sticks in my head, because it's an illustration called Locke's Locked Library. If I can, have I said that right? Locke's Locked Library. Yeah, I did say it right. Locke's Locked Library. There's a man who's locked in a library, but this man loves books. So he is, in fact, locked in the library. There's a law keeping him there. But that's not what's keeping him there. What's keeping him there is that he loves looking at the books. That's what John is talking about, something like that, when it says Jesus took away sin and lawlessness. God's laws are still there. We're still under an obligation to obey them because he's God. But what Jesus does is win us with delight at the lavish love of God that makes him uh, love us, that fills us with hope, that changes who we are. 
So we're not confined now by God says, I have to do this. We are changed, so we love what God wants us to do. And you know, John says, when lawlessness seems tempting, when someone tells you, yeah, yeah, you can have faith, but still do what you want to do all the time. You know, John says, that can't be right. Because Jesus, God's eternal son, appeared to take our sin, to take our lawless, rebellious heart away. And he has done that because we're like the man in the locked library. We love being there with God. Now, the humanists are onto something with their marketing. Because in our time, it's pretty cool to be lawless. Jesus did come to stop me being lawless, but many Christians understand that, but still feel a bit annoyed that they're having to submit to someone else's version of what's right. And sometimes that submission feels very difficult. Choosing every day to think, what does God the Father want of me? How do I accept my place in his universe rather than create my own meaning? That can be a hard call, one I sometimes struggle to do. But John says, remember him. Remember in him is no sin. Think about Jesus. So when you're feeling that tension, and I know we all feel it sometimes, you know, I'm having to submit to um, something that God says, even though I don't really want to. I'm having to submit to God's view of the world instead of deciding for myself, and it's hard. Ask this question. Do you want to actually be more like the average secular person who makes their own meaning? Or do you want to be more like Jesus? It's an easy question, isn't it? John knows people born from God, know God, welcomed into God's family, underneath all the rebellion and the fighting and the failure. We want to be like Jesus. That's what inspires us to be Christians. We think Jesus is really great. If you're a Christian here today, you do think that Jesus fitting in with God's eternal plan, rejecting lawlessness, the things Jesus did, caring for the people who needed help, bringing justice, confronting hypocrisy, giving himself for others. If you're a Christian trusting Jesus here today, that is more attractive to you than the average secular person just choosing what they want to do with their lives. And when you became a Christian, something like that must have called to you about Jesus. That's why you wanted to be a Christian. So while lawlessness is cool, yeah, decide your own meaning, calls me loudly, I prefer Jesus. In him is no sin. I prefer Jesus taking away my sins, and I prefer learning to be that way like Jesus, who loved others at his own extreme cost, fitting in with what God said. I don't want you to be led astray, says John. You can imagine them saying to Jesus, in fact, people did say this to him, Jesus, you're taking this all a bit too seriously. Jesus, when's your time for self-care? You need to do something for you. But in the end, uh, we radically aim for what is right because that is what Jesus did. Something about him being like that calls to us. That's the normal Christian life. 
So you know the true story. Now, just to be clear, uh, the humanists are not the enemy here. They're not the people to work about. In fact, as I said, I think humanists make very good dialogue partners. The enemy, the problem here, is the mix of that you get to decide what you want with, but it's also fine to be a Christian. You know, being like Jesus, you can fit that in with finding your own meaning. No, John says, Jesus appeared to take away sin, which is lawlessness. You know he had no sin, and it's him who lights your fire. You know the true story. Here's the second thing that we see. You don't want to join with the enemy. Now, it's not very sort of current to talk about the devil, as John does in this passage. I guess we don't talk about him that much in church here. Someone did actually giving their testimony last week, which has set up this passage very nicely. Um, But the Bible teaches us that God, who is in heaven, has an enemy. And that enemy is the one who, from the beginning, has always been lawless, rejecting God's rule over everything, and tempting others to do the same. And lawless people, people who live saying, I do what I want to do all the time, are bearing his likeness. They are his children, John says. Now, when we see paintings of the devil or people dressing up at Devil's Halloween or everything, he's a figure of fun. We even use the phrase like devilishly good kick. It's almost like it's good to be devilish. I don't think anybody's like welcoming evil power into their life by dressing at the devil or Halloween or anything. But it's a clever trick on his part to convince us that if he's there, he's just sort of fun. And if it's strange to you for us to be talking about the devil, I do want you to know it's not something here that we go on about. We only mention him when he comes up in a bit of the Bible that we're looking at, which actually isn't that often. But I actually think if you believe in good and evil, you have got to believe there is an evil force at work in the world. Because I tell you this, I don't know any really evil people. And yet evil things keep happening. Let me give you an example. Let's talk about one of the biggest industries in the world today, the porn industry. I think people who watch porn who are Christians have a sense that that is not righteous, that it is sinful. But they might find it a bit harsh if we said, well, that industry is the devil's work. It seems a bit intense. But here is a highly addictive product that people can consume in private. So there's no shame. And half of all sex trafficking victims report being forced to participate in the making of porn. Now the lawless person says, well, it's just a harmless release for you. Nobody can tell you how to live. But it's built on an exploitation and destruction of lives of thousands, millions perhaps, of mainly women and even children. And someone, some force, has made us think, oh, it's just a private sin. Isn't there an evil mind at work here that has been built an industry of exploitation? 
on something we've been told is private. Let me give you another example. Let me talk about borders. I don't know whether you realise, but every day, uh, by the way, I am pro-European Union, just for uh, not campaigning about that for you, but just to be clear about this illustration, I'm not, you know, going all Brexity. Um, I'm not making a point about Brexit. That's also fine to want that too. Anyway, crashing on. A little man from the European Union, a little man in a suit, comes out at a microphone every day to report at a press conference how many of the world's poorest people have died trying to get into the European Union on a boat. He just comes out and reports that every day. Now, he is not an evil person. But there is an evil system at work, isn't there? A power at work in the world that hates God's image in the poorest people of the world. I think it's fine to say that is the devil's work. But here is the good news, John says. The Son of God appeared to destroy the devil's work. The Son of God appeared to remake creation, to win people like us out of the clutches of that lawless spiritual power, to birth in us a new life where we reject the lawless call of pleasure and power that damages others and give ourselves up for the poorest and weakest people. John says all of those evil systems will be judged and put to death for good one day by the Son of God, Jesus. Now, what's all of this got to do with what we're talking about? Well, here it is. If you think that stuff is the devil's work, and you think Jesus came to destroy the devil's work, and you know Jesus, you will say, I want to be on his side, not the devil's side. You will find birthed in you a new desire to be on the side of the Son of God, not Satan. He's not saying, John, you ought to try and take Jesus' side a bit more against Satan. He just says you will have found it. You will find God's spirit working in you saying, I want to be on Jesus' side against that evil stuff. And so he says, don't listen to anybody who says, oh, well, that's a bit extreme. Take your foot off the pedal. My experience of being a Christian is that different things are hard in this way at different times. God's Holy Spirit challenges you about something and you grapple with it, knowing you're in God's family, accepted by God, adopted by him. You grapple with something that you realize is wrong. You don't realize until later that something else in your life that was there the whole time is also wrong and you have to start dealing with that. And life is just going through that process lots of times. God, our gentle father, highlights to us where we need to change. And what he's doing there is gradually, but definitely saying, walk on Jesus' side, not the side of Satan. There's a trend, I guess, for people to say that, um, and I guess this happens to lots of people in our church over time, because our church is fairly young, that seriousness about this, seriousness about only lending your strength to what the Son of God does and taking it away from what he came to destroy, it's just the enthusiasm of youth. As you get older, 
you'll settle more into more sort of social religion. You'll give your life to all the devilish structures of the world, as John has said, the lust of the eyes and the pride of the life. But just keep going to church. As I've got older, I've even found people telling me that. Don't think about really reflecting God's love in your life. Settle down. There's an industry of Christian books saying to Christians, you need more money. God wants you to be successful. Your selfish desires will be a good guide to what God wants. Well, as a poet once said, no longer lend your strength to that which you wish to be free from. No longer lend your strength to that which you wish to be free from. He says what you'll find if you're a Christian is that you'll look at life differently all the time. Is this something Jesus came to build or to destroy? Is this part of the system he's going to bring down or something that he is going to build forever? Every Christian will build for Jesus, not for Satan. And don't be led astray, John says. The Son of God appeared to destroy the devil's work. No one who knows God knowingly goes on joining in with what the devil is working towards. And don't listen to someone who might say, relax. That serious stuff is only for the enthusiastic kids. Don't let anyone lead you astray. Third and last thing that we see, you just can't hold it back. John returns to a phrase we noticed and celebrated last week. Christians are born of God. You're reborn into a new life when you trust Jesus. Something we saw reenacted last week with less blood and pain than a physical birth uh, when we saw people celebrating getting baptized. But here's another picture like being born of God. It's a picture a bit like Jack and the Beanstalk. When you became a Christian, God planted an unstoppable plant into your life. And that picture of the plant, that is a lovely picture of what it's like to be a Christian. When God gives you new birth, it's like a seedling plant inside you. And if you're a Christian trusting Jesus, while there'll be ups and downs, no one can kill that plant. There's new life in there and you can do nothing about it. It just grows. It's like a picture of a sunflower. I love the way sunflowers, like through the day, their heads move to follow the sun. They just can't help it. And John is saying God has planted something like that in your life. Wherever God is, you, you will sort of follow him round. You won't be able to stop it. Now, for those of us who might be finding this passage disturbing, thinking, was that really me? You do need to think that. We'll come to that in a minute. But can I say, I get to talk to more people in our church life about this than most people here, being one of the church leaders. And I think this is basically often happening. I will hear from people in this church who love and admire Jesus and who have made the center of their lives building what matters to Jesus. And they do say things like, you know, I didn't really want to do that, but I did. I reject lawlessness. I know I'm in God's family. So I did this difficult thing that wasn't really my first choice. You know, really, my life could have been better if I ditched that responsibility, but I found out I just couldn't do it because I wanted to honor God. 
I really wanted to like flip out at that person, but I didn't because I really wanted to grow towards Jesus. I just found I can't go on sinning. This plant is just going to grow. Now, it's not perfection immediately. If you know God, in the areas of life, you will be able to see where you're being conformed. You'll be able to see the plant is growing. And you will find, I just can't stop and go back to how I was. This new life just won't be put down and crushed. Now, as an aside, if you really don't know that at all, so if what I am saying to you bears no experience to what you would call your spiritual life, you do need to ask some tricky questions. But do remember one John, he said at the beginning, all you need to do is confess your sin and God is faithful and just and will forgive your sin. So if that's the case, go to God and confess it and he will start this new life in you. It's easily done. But this is really aimed at people who are saying things to Christians, usually in an attempt to be helpful. The evidence that was what happened in John's church is that people went out and they engaged with the world and they found the actual message that you're adopted into God's family and it should change your life. It's a bit radical and people don't really want to accept it. If we make the call a bit more reachable, then people will listen. Now, I don't think I need to say, please don't be weird for the sake of being weird. You know, sometimes Christians do that, and it's embarrassing, isn't it? It's like they're not strange to the world because they're like Jesus. They're just strange. It's not a call to do that. But I do think we sometimes think, oh, the thing we ought to do to help people trust Jesus is really try and be like people, water down the radical nature of what it means to be a Christian. And John says, no, our job as we're sent out into the world is to always move towards being like Jesus, to always be against what Satan is doing, to always let the new life of God grow in me. Don't listen to someone who says, just curb your enthusiasm about that. That's not the real deal. You know, those versions of Christianity in the media only make it because there's some truth in them. There's some truth in it, I'm sure, for people in our church. People have used religious forms, words, structures to do evil things to you. And John is very clearly saying here, God is not okay with that. They don't get a free pass because they're religious. It should have been life transforming. And he is saying, don't be led astray by that if that's happened. Continue and remain in Jesus. Let him purify you, live in you. Let the plant grow with this life transforming truth. Don't fall for a weaker, more acceptable, but ultimately false version of the real thing. If we're going to continue in Jesus, we need God's help. We need his strength. We need him to bring that plant to grow, that new life to come out of us. So we're going to pray and ask for his help to do that now. Let's pray. 
just take a few moments of quiet to reflect on what we've heard. Heavenly Father, please don't let us be left astray, uh, led astray. Please don't let us start believing that trusting you and being in your family is less than it actually is. Please um, don't let us begin believing anybody that tells us we shouldn't uh, obey your law. We shouldn't fight against what Satan is doing. That we shouldn't let this plant grow and take over our lives. Lord, well-meaning but wrong people are telling us that. And the end of that can be really religion just covering up evil, which is a terrible and ugly thing. So please don't let, let us be led astray. And to live in the reality of what you're doing in us. We need your help, and we pray that you'll give us that help. In Jesus' name, amen.